And let's pray together. Father in heaven, yours really is a beautiful name. There's no disputing that, no arguing with it, no disagreeing with it. It's a beautiful name. It means everything to us. Father, your name means salvation, means love, means mercy and forgiveness. Your name means eternity. And that is a beautiful name. I'm grateful that it's you that we come here today to worship. Lord, there's no one else worthy of it. No one else that should ever sit in that position. No one else that shares a name even close to yours. It's a beautiful name of Jesus that drives us and inspires us. It's the beautiful name of Jesus that puts us on our knees before your throne. It's the beautiful name of Jesus, Lord, that gets us back on our feet and moves us forward. Thank you for the gift of your Son. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open to John chapter 16. We're going to make some interesting stops along the way to that passage. In fact, a number of them as we get started. I want to show you some declarative statements of Jesus from the New Testament. These come right from His mouth. There's a number of them. We're going to start with 24 that will appear just random in nature. They're not. They are the words of Jesus, and each one of them has its own unique point. But I just put them together so that you could see some of the statements that the Lord has made to those that love Him. Now let's just walk through these together. The first 24, again, will seem random. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can find that in John chapter 14, verse 6. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Matthew 9, verse 13. Ask and it will be given to you. Matthew 7, 7. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. John chapter 8, verse 36. Somebody say amen. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verse 30. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Those were words shared with the Apostle Paul by Jesus himself. You are the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, taken from the Sermon on the Mount. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John chapter 15, verse 5. Great teaching. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Matthew chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus' way of teaching us humility and what it means to be humble in spirit as we serve others. I am coming soon. Revelation 22, verse 7. A promise that we all do well to hold on to. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. If you love me, you will obey what I command. John chapter 14, verse 15. Simple teaching. You give them something to eat. Mark chapter 6, verse 37. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verse 18. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. A promise that changed the world. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Mark chapter 7, verse 6, very insightful. You will be my witnesses, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, shared with the apostles. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Mark chapter 7, verse 6. You will be my witnesses. We're doubling back on four of them here. I thought so a little earlier. Let's keep going through number 24. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. I already looked at that. 23. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. John chapter 6, verse 29. Now there's really just 21 random statements from Jesus that have the ability to penetrate every one of our hearts at some point in our life. Somewhere along the trail of your life, one of those statements would speak truth and speak life to you. Now, you may find that a number of them could be pulled out at certain portions along your journey to this point, and you could apply them at those different points. And some of you may say, I, I've recognized the reality of all 21 of those statements. Every one of them has spoken directly to my heart and to my mind. These next four we have put together for a very specific reason. They're what I would refer to as the take heart statements of Jesus. And we all need to pay very close, very careful attention to all four of them. Take a look. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Matthew chapter 9, verse 22. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Matthew chapter 14, verse 27. Take heart, I have overcome the world. John chapter 16, verse 33. At the end of the message, I'm going to show you the context for all four of those take heart statements. And hopefully you will find the application necessary in your own lives. There is one last statement I want you to see today. It is the greatest statement Jesus ever shared. Look at this. It is finished. John chapter 19, verse 30. We'll be looking at that one next week. When he was hanging on the cross and he made that declaration, it is finished, that changed the world. It changed the world. It is finished. The penalty, the price for sin has been paid. Jesus hanging there on the cross just as he was about to breathe his last breath said, it is finished. And hours before that, he would say, take heart. That's John chapter 16, verse 33. Take a look at it if you have your Bibles open to that chapter. John chapter 16, verse 33. These are Jesus' words. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. There's that take heart statement. Tucked away in the midst of some very difficult teaching. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Four times in the Gospels, Jesus would say the exact same thing. Take heart. And then He would follow it with another statement. Take heart statements are given to us to strengthen us, to encourage us, to get us through some of the most difficult times that we will ever face. Take heart, Jesus says. They are words that are given to share a partnership with us. Take heart, I'm in this with you. Take heart, this is what I've done for you. Take heart, this is the power that you have because of me. That's the point of the take heart statements. 
I looked for a number of different ways over the course of this past week to illustrate that take heart idea with you. And over and over and over again, I kept coming back to the exact same place. A clip from the movie Braveheart. It captures this whole idea better than anything that I could possibly come up with. Let me just show you the clip and then I'll share with you a few details. Watch this. fashionable fight has drawn the finest people. Where is thy salute? For presenting yourselves on this battlefield. I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army, why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. Oh, the English are too many. Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. Kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes. I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. Three men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Right? Against that? No! We will run! And we will live. Alright? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. Dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! all charged up. And that was the whole intention of that. The screenwriter wrote it to do that very thing. Now, interestingly, the screenwriter's name is Randall Wallace. He is a distant relative of William Wallace. He is also a Christian. He has written his life story, his faith journey, and he has tied it together with the writing of this movie. He has placed his entire testimony in what he refers to as living the brave heart life. And in the sharing of his testimony, Randall Wallace tells some of the details behind the filming of this scene. These are pretty good. All of those extras that you saw 
were actually members of the IRA, the Irish Reserve Army. They were on drill the week that they were filming that scene. So the producers of Braveheart went to the Irish government and worked out a deal with them so that their soldiers, rather than just drilling for the week, would actually participate in the filming of the movie and they would get credit for it as reservists. Pretty good. So the producers saved a lot of money rather than having to go out and hire 2,000 extras to play the warriors in that scene. And the reservists got to be a part of a, a blockbuster movie and they got to be in it with Mel Gibson. So they were very, very excited. Now, Randall Wallace would say the joy of hiring all of these Irishmen is they already had the right haircuts. They had the right tattoos. And in most of their cases, they already had the right amount of dirt on their face. So they didn't even have to smear dirt and grease there to make them look authentic. All they had to do was put the costumes on them and line them up. Now, Randall Wallace goes on to say that the filming of a Hollywood movie is very exciting the first day that you show up for it, and after that, it is nothing but sheer boredom. So all of these Irish soldiers showed up expecting an exciting week, and the first few hours, that's exactly what they got, predominantly because Mel Gibson was walking around with them. But then when it came time to stand in their uniforms or in their costumes in this horde of 2,000 other soldiers while they set all of the cameras in place and got all of the lighting set up, they started to do just what Irish men do when they get bored. They had rubber swords in their hands and rubber spears in their hands, so they started fighting with one another. They started wrestling around, started rolling on the ground as they were battling it out in whatever way with each other. And nobody really cared. But then the moment came when an assistant director yelled action. They all had to stand up. They all had to get back to where they were at. And then Mill Gibson comes riding in on his horse. Not as Mel Gibson, but as William Wallace. He said everyone just seemed to suck all the air out of the countryside when that happened. Because he had gone from Mel Gibson to William Wallace perfectly and he had their attention. Randall Wallace goes on to say that the horse that Mel was riding is actually a pretty laid back horse. But Mel put so much energy into the scene that the horse was dancing right to left and running up and down the line naturally solely because of the energy that Gibson brought to the whole scene. As he rode in front of all of these supposed Scottish warriors, he got them pretty fired up. And he goes into that speech that is so inspiring. It was written again to do that very thing, to inspire when he got to the part about, I am William Wallace and you have freedom, what will you do with that? Will you fight? All 2,000 of these Irish reservists had been coached to stand as still as statues and not say a word. They were not to say one word. There was an actor among them that would step forward and say, the English are too many, we will run and we will live. And then William Wallace would go into the rest of his scene where he would say, I, you will live for a while anyway, and so on. You just saw that. No reason to go back through it. That's the way the whole thing was intended to work. But because these 2,000 Irishmen were so caught up in Mel Gibson's character as William Wallace, when he said, what will you do with your freedom? Will you fight? 
all 2,000 of them, almost on cue, started yelling, yes, and we'll kill them all. That's exactly what they said (laughs) over and over and over again. He says, Randall Wallace does, that instantly Mel Gibson became Mel Gibson. He was no longer William Wallace. He wasn't sure what to do in that moment. So his horse just kind of stopped. He's staring at the director and staring at the crowd. The director had to yell the word cut seven times to get them to calm down. He, through his megaphone, would yell cut the first time and they were ready to go on the war path. He yelled it the second time and they were still charged up, swords above their heads, spears above their head. Show us the enemy, we'll run them down, we'll kill them all. Seven times the director had to yell, cut, cut, cut. Then they go back and they reset the entire scene and they have to do it over in order to get exactly what they were shooting for. Here's the whole point of that. Randall Wallace would say, in just a few moments, Through the midst of that speech, William Wallace took people that he really did not know and convinced them that he could lead them anywhere and they would be victorious. They formed a partnership with William Wallace that fast, ready to follow him into battle and even unto death if that is what was called for. That was a take heart speech. It was a take heart speech. I am William Wallace and I am here and I will lead you. When we get into the take heart statements of Jesus, they can do the exact same thing for us. They form a partnership within us where we can look at Him as our Lord and Savior and declare that we will follow Him anywhere because Jesus said, take heart, I am with you. Take heart, you have been forgiven. Take heart, I have overcome the world. In fact, take a look at these four statements again, will you? Each one of them is as if it was taken directly from that movie Braveheart. The same energy, the same excitement, the same motivation sits behind each one of those take heart statements. That's Jesus' way of telling us we're moving into battle. We are moving ahead. You stay with me. You follow me. We will be victorious. Go back with me to John chapter 16 and I'll show you why that is true. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that leading up to this statement in the 33rd verse, Jesus has said some difficult things to His apostles. Some very hard things. He told them that one of them would betray Him. He has told all of them that Peter would deny Him. He has shared this deep teaching with them, and this would be hard to hear. The world's going to hate you. He told all of them that. The world's going to hate you. But it's all right. They hated me first. He said, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to experience some of the things that I've experienced. The world's going to hate you, and they are going to be adversarial to you, but they have hated me, and certainly they are adversarial to me. Those were hard things. But really, he put the crown on the whole discussion when He says to them, and I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going to be leaving. That was hard, hard teaching for them. And so then in the 33rd verse of John chapter 16, He says, I've said these things to you, those types of things to you, that in Me you may have peace or the shalom of God. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. 
In this world, it's going to be tough. But take heart, he says. You take heart. I have overcome the world. What a great statement. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. But take heart. I am Jesus, the Christ. Take heart. I will go with you. It's the forming of a beautiful partnership. And in that moment, in that moment, the disciples were with him. All but Judas. They were ready for whatever would come. And let me show you why. In chapter 17, we have recorded for us what is referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He prays for all of the apostles. They get to hear it. He prays for us as well. We get to hear it. Listen to this. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction." that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is where he starts to pray for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love, love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now that's his William Wallace speech. 
It happens to be that it was a prayer that they had the privilege of listening to. That was Jesus saying to the Lord, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. That's the partnership. And they got to hear it. They got to hear Jesus say, I long for nothing more than for all of my children to see and to experience and to know my glory, the glory that I'm familiar with, the glory that I'm living, the glory that I'm experiencing. I want them to know all of it. I want us to have this partnership that lasts forever and I'll lead the way. I'll lead the way. The apostles were pretty charged up at that point. Take a look at chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am He. Judas, who betrayed Him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now don't miss that part of the story. They came out to arrest Him, and when Judas betrayed Him, when they heard Jesus say, I am He, they fell back. They fell on their knees. They knew what they were about to do. Whether they had consciously processed it or not, Something deep within them told them what they were about to do. And these soldiers that had come single-mindedly to arrest Jesus, those were their marching orders. They fell back. They fell back. They couldn't carry through what they were doing. Verse 7. So He asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So he gave them another chance. They had fallen back. They were scared. The battle was already won. The victory was already there for the disciples, for Jesus. But he gave them another chance. Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. I'm the one you came for. You let everybody else go. I am the one you came for. And now they were a little more bold, so they stepped forward. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That is my favorite part of the whole story. Because I think i got a lot of Peter in me. So Peter's watching what's happening, and now these guys are stepping forward to take Jesus. Jesus had told them if they didn't have a sword, they needed to sell their coat and buy one. That was an illustration for a whole other point. Peter didn't get it, but he had sold his coat and he had bought a sword and he had it hanging on his side and they stepped forward to arrest Jesus. And Peter thought the same way I would, well, now's the time to use my sword. So he pulled his sword, an Irish reserve officer. Yes, we will fight and we will kill them all. And he swung his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, at which time Jesus, the director of the entire production, steps forward and goes, cut, 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 cut. This is not what was supposed to happen. He tells Peter, put your sword away. And he talks down the other ten. 
He reaches down and he grabs hold of Malchus's ear, the Bible says, and he put it back on miraculously. He put his ear back on in that instant. And then he went on to the cross. You see, Peter wasn't getting it. Peter didn't see the whole picture yet. But what he did see was a partnership. I'm in it with you, Lord. If they're coming for you, they've got to go through me. Jesus would help them understand in just a few hours that if anybody's coming for you, they have to go through me and the victory is already there. You don't have to worry about that. Peter was just acting impetuously. He was caught up in the prayer that he had just heard. He was caught up in the words of John chapter 16, verse 33, Take heart, I've overcome the world. And the warrior in him kicked in. Jesus will help him make his way through warrior into wise servant. But right then, in that moment, he was so partnered with the Lord, he was willing to fight for him. That's what those take heart statements do for us. They form that type of a partnership between us and God. And they are given to us for that very reason, to do that very thing, to form a partnership that we might, as Jesus would say in John chapter 17, be perfectly one with Him. It's that type of partnership that the Lord is longing for with us. And He gives us these four take heart statements to show us how it works. And if you put all four of these together from the Gospels, then you will see why the take heart statements work the way they do. We're going to put them back up on the screen again. Take a look. Here are the four take heart statements of Jesus. Now in some translations, the words take heart are actually translated be of good cheer. Or in modern terminology, we would call it cheer up or we would say it as cheer up. So cheer up, my son, your sins are forgiven. Cheer up, daughter, your faith has made you well. Cheer up, it is I, do not be afraid. Cheer up, I have overcome the world. Now I personally like the take heart side of it better because it is an inspirational thing. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, I have overcome the world. But if we take the idea of being of good cheer or cheering up and we apply it to all four of these statements, here's what you are going to see. You are going to see now how the Lord would apply these. We're going to go to the next slide, Terry. We have the good cheer of His pardon. Take heart because God has pardoned us. Take heart, son. Your sins have been forgiven. Then we have the good cheer of His power from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 22, when He speaks to His daughter. That's the good cheer of His power. And then there's the good cheer of His presence. And then there's this one in John chapter 16, verse 33. It is the good cheer of His victory. So we have, through the take heart statements, the pardon, the power, the presence, and the victory of Jesus. All four of those are captured in the take heart statements. And that's what forms our partnership because we have all of those things available to us. The pardon of the Lord, the power of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, and the victory that comes through the Lord. My friends, that is the gospel. The word gospel means very simply good news. When we present the gospel to people, we are presenting the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And that's it. Through relationship with Him, you can experience pardon. You can experience power. You can experience the very presence of God. And those three things will lead you to the victory. That's the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ captured in just four take-heart statements throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four statements of the Gospel that will put us in a perfectly one relationship with God. And it all happens through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the way it works. That's the partnership. And when we understand that, that's the kind of thing that causes us, like Peter, to want to draw a sword and fight on behalf of our Lord. Even if that is a misplaced passion, that still happens because that's how strong the relationship is. Wherever you go, Lord, I'll go. Whatever you ask of me, Lord, I'll do it. Whatever you want from me, I am willing to give it. Whatever, Lord, whatever you want, I am willing to do that. Take heart. Take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. We're going to get into the last part of that next week. Today, hopefully, you can see the passion and the emotion behind the words take heart. But right between take heart, I have overcome the world, is something crazy interesting. And if you really want to study the Bible, you have to learn to study it at this level. So go back to John chapter 16, verse 33 with me. And look really, really close. Here's the statement again. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I had a professor in Bible college named Dr. Don Leach. Dr. Leach required us to memorize massive amounts of Scripture, long runs of Scripture. When we were tested on it, we had to write it all out. Not only did we have to memorize the words, but we had to memorize the punctuation. And we had to make sure that we got everything where it belonged. If you put a period where there was supposed to be a comma, you went from an A to a B. If you put a comma where there was supposed to be a period, you went from a B to a C. All you had to do was mess up four punctuation marks and you failed the test. So he made us memorize these long runs of Scripture complete with all of the grammar. And he also made us write out very long passages of Scripture from the New Testament as we outlined it. And when he would grade it, I don't know how he did this for all of us, he would go back in and grade our punctuation. If we messed it up, we were in trouble. Because Dr. Leach would teach that if you mess up punctuation in Scripture, you may very well change the meaning of that passage. And he said punctuation drives home everything that we need to grab hold of. Now, he's not alone in that. There are a number of other people that have said the exact same thing. A great preacher named Dr. Richard Crabtree actually preached a message called The Grammar of God. In it, he said this, don't ever be guilty of putting a comma where God puts a period. And certainly don't be guilty of putting a period where God puts a comma. It changes the meaning. It really does. And in this particular passage, you can see why grammar matters so much. Right between take heart, I have overcome the world, there is a semicolon. Now, you may not be completely aware of the meaning behind a semicolon or the use of it. 
if you're not Sarah Barrick or John England, you probably could not explain a semicolon just off the top of your head. Certainly, I can't. I had to go back and refresh my memory on the point and the purpose of a semicolon. The Oxford Dictionary defines a semicolon this way. The main task of the semicolon is to mark a break that is stronger than a comma, but not as final as a full stop. It's used between two main clauses that balance each other and are too closely linked to be made into separate sentences. There is a reason that we see a semicolon in John chapter 16, verse 33, because we have two main clauses that balance each other and they are too closely linked to be made into separate sentences. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Each one of them could stand on its own, but it shouldn't. Take heart needs the remaining part of the sentence. I have overcome the world. The semicolon matters. It is a connection of the two things. Don't just take heart because Jesus died for you. Don't just take heart because He forgave your sins. Don't just take heart because you have the ability to feel His presence in relationship with Him. You take heart because He has overcome the world. Two main clauses that are connected through God's grammar. There isn't a period or a comma there because neither one work. A semicolon works. Take heart. He has overcome the world. And in Him, we will as well. It's a great promise. You be here on Easter Sunday, and I'll show you why. Why don't you stand with us? Father in heaven, I am oftentimes amazed. Even after 40 years of walking with you, I am amazed at how you know what we need when we need it. When we're facing challenges, you know that we need to hear you say, take heart. When life is crashing down on us and it seems like we have been overcome by it, we need you to say, I have overcome the world. But Father, just to hear, I have overcome the world without take heart, well, it doesn't offer us much hope. So you know that we need both. Thank you, Lord, for that. The fact that we could go through Scripture and find the other places where you have inspired us with the same words allows us to make our way through some of the most difficult things we'll ever face. Thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that you would look at us and say, Take heart. I am in this with you. Take heart. I am never far from you. Take heart. Because I have overcome. And so will you. Lord, I love that. I just love that. I pray that others will get to the place where they do as well. I know that we have many in this room right now that have already fallen in love with statements like that. But there are still others that don't understand how you could say it and how it's possible. So I pray that that changes today. In Jesus' name, amen.